welcome to the RLSS UK podcast channel. This is episode number 15. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome today's guest and today's guest is Bobby White. Uh, so Bobby White is Chief Exec of Life Saving Society Canada. I hope I got the yes, title sir. right. Um, yeah. Part of the Royal Life Saving Society Commonwealth family. I'm delighted to welcome him today and get a really interesting perspective on how things vary from the UK um and what kind of things bobby's been up to in, in life saving in canada um thanks for joining us bobby uh what time is it there so here presently it's eleven thirty-seven. so uh, in the morning so which is great great to be here excited great so thank you um i, I do want to like i said talk a, a quite a bit about um your experiences of COVID and how that's interrupted life saving um, and the organization and how you've adapted to that. But the first thing I want to ask you, which is a question that I ask everybody uh, in these podcasts, is just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you ultimately became chief exec. So that, that's, that's a, actually a, an interesting question. Thank you for that, because I come from a very uh, different background. I'm a hockey guy. I started off my career in, in hockey um, in the 80s uh, on the administrative side. And uh, so I was president of New Brunswick Ho Amber Hockey and then went into uh, the major junior hockey league uh, as a, a, a team manager uh, on the business side, uh, worked my way in there. So major junior hockey here, that's where the NHL goes to select their players like in the draft that's that's uh, so it's kids that are 16 to 19 year olds mainly uh, it goes to 21 but um but mainly 16 to 9 year, 19 year olds um and then um from there i uh, i got into um, the uh, international hockey league and then i i left that i got out of hockey altogether got into politics a little bit uh, i lived in atlantic canada so um um I'm originally from New Brunswick, but uh, and then moved around in Canada. Ended up in uh, in Ottawa through politics, um, and then uh, didn't necessarily enjoy my experience in politics, so I decided to move on and ended up with um, with United Way Ottawa, which is a huge organization and it runs the the Government of Canada Employee Charitable Campaign. And at that time, whenever I was there, I, I was there for five years and it went from 8.9 million to 15.2 million. Um, and then after I left, it, it went up even further up to about 25 million a year, uh, which was which is huge. And so I left United Way and uh, went to work with an organization called Spinal Cord Injury Canada. So I ended up being the um, CEO of, it, of Spinal Cord Injury Canada. Uh, was there for approximately 15 years, got out of that, did a little bit of consulting. This job opened up, I applied for it, and uh, I've been here ever since. I think I think with my experience, uh, Spinal Cord Injury Canada was a federated model, and which is totally different than a, than a national model. And I think that my experience with Spinal Cord Injury Canada is actually what attracted them to me and saying, how do we manage this? federated model thing and uh, how do we bring everybody together on the same page so that's kind of where my career has gone okay great and and that kind of leads me into actually the the next thing that was interested in is is understand a little bit more about the model in canada because um it's obviously different to the uk uh, yeah. so just just talk me through how it how it looks and where you fit in into so the basically whole yeah so, so Canada is uh, is what we call a federated model. So we're we're kind of based on similarly to what our national government is. So basically, we have ten provinces and territories. Um, so they are actually all independent members. So we, the federated model is actually a bottom up model, not a top down model. So we don't dictate to them. They actually, uh, we work with the branches to develop our priorities and. Um, our policies and everything that we want to do, but they are the ones that actually implement and deliver. And we don't do any delivery when it comes to provincial delivery uh, of any program in Canada. So we have our mandatory programs, like all of our training programs and instructor programs or lifeguard programs and all that that are mandatory, but we develop them. We actually work with the provinces to make changes, to improve them and all this here stuff here. 
but we don't actually deliver. The branches do, and whenever we kind of step into their territory, they tell us they tell us to step aside and move away. But uh, it's it's actually uh, it's not necessarily a model that's utilized um, uh, more and more now. I think I think it's going more and more the other way. But uh, we've changed this model. I think in two thousand and nine. Um, uh, my expertise is that I, I, I'm more toward a guy that brings everybody together um, and more on team building and getting buy-in from everyone and that type of thing. So that's um, basically the model. So in regards to, so we have our, what we call member representatives. So that's kind of like our Senate, if you want. Uh, so basically our member representatives is one member for each branch. And their role is basically, if there's any issues or major uh, issues that uh, involve the society and it's more uh, they play a big role in regards to the levy and the uh, the uh, contributions from branches to the national that type of thing then we have the board that basically they develop the policies for uh, the society overall and we have operations and this is where i come in and where we're actually a secretariat and we're kind of the bridge in between the board and the operations so we have what we call a management team and the management team is the executive director from each province and territory. And then we have uh, four commissions. So uh, so those commissions work with us. So we have training standards, sport, uh, public education, and we actually have an IRC committee. And uh, so uh, the International Relations Committee is part of the board, but it, it anyway, so we, we work with them as well. So that's part of our secretary. That's what I oversee. And then I actually, I'm kind of the clerk of the board and the member rep and the board has 12 committees so i coordinate those 12 committees as well um and and the workload that goes in there and making sure they're going so it's a, it's a bit uh, it's a bit um, different it's everything is driven by by the provinces it's not driven necessarily the directive is actually driven by the provinces and we drive the the making sure that it gets done and accomplished so we're more of a secretariat than we are uh, an actual uh, governing body that tells people this is the way that it's going to work. Gotcha. So it's a little bit different. <laughs> a lot of negotiation, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds incredibly complex, and I guess your, yes, your, it is. your working politics must have uh, at least stood you in good stead for <laughs> yes. the politics that arise out working with mm -hmm. 10 provinces. So just, just to clarify, of those 10 provinces, they all have their own boards, do they do they employ staff? Are they or they volunteers? Oh yeah, so they they all they all employ staff, and so Ontario, for example, has approximately 50, 55 staff. You go to Alberta, they'll have seven. Uh, Quebec has twenty five, and the list goes on. So we have four major provinces in Canada. So you have Quebec, Ontario, and Alberta and BC. They're they're the largest ones, and then we have six smaller provinces. Um, so if you go from Atlantic Canada, so you have your Newfoundland, PEI, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. And um, so that's, and we got to find a balance whenever we're doing our planning, because you always kind of plan for the, the lowest denominator, but you don't necessarily want to hinder the larger provinces, right? They have to be able to keep on going and and uh, move forward because they're progressing at a, a different rate. But it's all population-based as well, right? So it's it's basically proportional representation. I mean, there's 16 million people out of 35, 36 million in Canada that live in Ontario. So I mean, it's, you know, it, Ontario uh, is about a little over 50% or whatever of, of the uh, of the society, so. Right. So and those, those are have, things we They have a chief exec in Ontario. Yeah, they all do. Every branch has the has a chief exec, every one of them, and uh, they all have their independent boards. And whenever they actually, I don't recruit so uh, for board members, they actually appoint their board member and their member member representative. So I don't have a say in that. The national body does not have a say in that. It's actually them who uh, appoint their board member, and they appoint their member representative. So, and and what's your relationship? How do you interact with the other chief execs of the provinces then? So we have uh, we have what we call the chief execs are part of what we call management team. So we have meetings with them every two months, 
And then there's also, you know, like an ongoing relationship that I have with them on a regular basis, but other, there's a whole, uh, so for example, if we're, if we're reviewing a training manual, they actually have employees or, or volunteers that are part of that. Every branch is represented on the review and they're part of that process. So uh, it's huge. It's, uh, it's, it's volunteer driven. We do have a lot of staff across Canada, but at the end of the day, um, we're still a, a volunteer driven organization. I'd say our budget, uh, you know, collectively is probably around 22, 23 million um, a year in, in Canada. Wow. Of which the larger part, ten million, would be Ontario. And 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 how many people in total would be potentially employed by the provinces and by? I'd say uh, we're close to a hundred people uh, okay. across Canada. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's uh, but everybody's independent. So uh, it yeah. uh, and but we all we have our, our bylaws, our constitution, and they have um, guiding principles that they have to go through. There's certain things that are mandatory uh, from a training perspective. Um, so they, they have to, we have what we call mandatory manuals. And uh, so they have to uh, follow those manuals. So for example, they couldn't do another bronze medal. Uh, so th those things are, man are mandatory. So, uh, so we oversee that mandatory part. Um, but they are actually responsible for the anything that's delivered uh, in a in a within the province is them. Now there could be some stuff that's done outside of that. For example, we have partnerships with YMCA um, that we do. So that's a national organization like us. So we we will develop uh, a relationship at the national level. But when it comes to delivering the package to the local YMCA, it's actually the brands that will do that. So, okay. Yeah. So, how 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 then do you manage COVID and the pandemic on? Because yeah. you've got multi layers within the yeah. country. Yeah. And uh, is the guidance different from from the national? So what government? we do. How does so what that we do is that you? we have what we call the uh, standards commission, and the standards commission actually. Uh, develops high level standards that should be applied throughout Canada. And um, normally what we try to do is that if a branch is affected by legislation, so if we we make some type of a proposal, but there's legislation that says you can't do that in a certain province, then we, we kind of back off or we try to find alternative solutions to do that. Uh, but basically, whenever it came to COVID, what we did is that right starting right from the start in, in April, we started working on um, on bulletins saying reopening bulletins. So, uh, so our affiliates were asking our branches, uh, we what we call an affiliate is a, a pool operator, whether you know municipal or private. Uh, so the affiliate would ask all these questions like, what do I do? Uh, how many people per lane? Uh, do do we let them come in without a mask? Can they use a snorkel? Can they do this? Can they do that? Um, and then we would actually develop the policy. So I think that in the end, I we end. We developed, I think it was 16 standards, uh, news bulletins on different standards. So the branches actually took part in that. They actually have volunteers or staff that sit on this here on this here standards uh, commission, and they participate in that. And then we would have instead of having, uh, we we normally meet every two months with the management team. We'd actually met every month, and as in probably in London or in UK, uh, the government would come out and say. Oh, by the way, we're changing the rules today. And then you'd say, oh, here we go again. So like, at the beginning, it was kind of like, okay, we're changing. And then, but this started happening kind of like every week or every two weeks. And we were kind of like, okay, there's an update. So this province is opening, but that province is not opening. Uh, so it was, it became very complex. So what we started doing is very high level uh, opening um, standards and training program policies. So, for example, on research, we extended our recertifications. You got to research every two years, but we extended our recertification uh, till December 30, 30, uh, 31st, for example, of 2020. So that was one that was a huge thing for the problem for the for the operators because they wanted to say, you know what, if the government says, OK, and the problem, the government wasn't giving us any lead time. They were announcing on Friday that things were opening on Monday. So it was kind of like, OK, how do we do all this here stuff? But you know, kudos to the to all of these here people that were on the uh, 
on that commission like they worked very very hard and uh, they were in this like knee deep it was crazy how uh, everything was interacting uh, so fast and uh, but they did a great job fantastic uh, wendy uh, my colleague that works with me and uh, eric Bayeux, they uh, actually did a fabulous job on making sure that all of these things were up to par we started opening up the, we had a, a lockdown from, uh, I think it was May to April to June. Uh, they opened up in July. Once they opened up, that kind of gave everybody a breather. And then they shut down again in late October. And we just opened up again. And now they're telling us that we're, we just opened up, it's been a month. And now they're telling us that the third wave is here. So we don't know what they're going to do with that. So, uh, and and we're waiting on vaccine. So. Yeah. Wow. And, and and we'll we'll touch on that in a minute because um yeah that, I mean it 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 sounds very very similar experience to the UK um particularly yeah. the, the the comment about the government not giving you much notice which yeah. uh had been an issue here and to be fair to the government that I think they've taken that on board and given us plenty of oh. time it's, with the roadmap yeah. and everything that's coming coming along the lines. So, just, just to just to clarify my own head and, and for the listeners. So what what you're actually saying it sounds like is a little bit akin to what we have in the UK, where we've got the devolved nations make the decisions what's going to close, when it closes, and when it reopens. So for example, in the UK, it's been announced that swimming pools can reopen from the 12th of April in England, but in Scotland it's like later in the month, and and Wales is doing something yeah. different. Ireland and so that you've got that 10 replicated 10 times each province yeah. decides when pools are shut yeah. when pools are open and you have to try and work with all, all those different parameters is that right yeah and and what what's interesting is that the smaller uh, provinces where <clears throat> COVID is not really prevalent like so if I give you like New Brunswick so New Brunswick has basically been operating their pools they didn't necessarily shut down like Ontario. So Ontario, you got the city of Toronto, which is kind of like the the largest city in Canada. So all of their pools are shut down. But whenever you look at the numbers, it's huge, right? For us, it's uh, like if you shut down the pools in Toronto, it's like you're you're talking huge, huge numbers. So for us, uh, what it what it ended up doing. So you have certain the smaller branches. A lot of them are still operating it didn't necessarily affect them as bad as what the larger uh, centers have. So we get Quebec, Ontario, uh, Alberta, and British Columbia, they really were affected uh, a lot harder uh, from an operational perspective. And, you know, just to, like the closures, the, the lockdowns that we have, like our training, our training of lifeguards, for example, went down to 61% in 2020 by 61%. So we only we only recertified like 39%. Uh, our training, our, 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 um, our instructors, that that amount went down by about 51% as well. So I, I'm sure that you experienced the same thing. But whenever we were on lockdown, uh, it affected budgets and it affected everything. Uh, so we, we think that this is going to stay in place for a bit. And, uh, okay, that's, I've, I've just literally done the calculation because I've never, yeah, thirty percent reduction in, uh, in in lifeguard training. And, and to be fair, it would have been probably significantly more than that had we not, towards the end of twenty twenty, through the government and Sport England and an organisation yeah. called Simspire in the UK, uh, they found. Um, I mean, it was fantastic for the sector, but they had really helped stimulate training through a grant scheme uh, that yeah. we, we, you know, we, was a almost a lifesaver for us because it suddenly meant that all the pool operators could go through this scheme and in effect retrain their staff at no yeah. cost or very little we, cost. We were and very fortunate because the federal government, the federal government came in and offered us, well, they offered everybody in Canada, all employers, uh, you could get up to 75% of the salary of your employees. So we we actually participated in that. All our branches participated in that. And, you know, Ontario, for example, um, you know, they have a $10 million budget, 55 employees. So you can imagine Quebec has 25 employees, for example. Uh, if they wouldn't have had that program, they couldn't, have stayed, they couldn't have stayed open or keep all their employees, right? 
The other thing I think that's important is that the government actually relies on us from a standard standpoint on reopening uh, pools. So, um, and and Swimming Canada, we we actually worked with them as well because we were we're both like I tell Swimming Canada, you guys can't do any swimming if we're not there. So you need us more than we need you. But anyway, so that's kind of like an ongoing joke. But but at the end of the day, so Swimming Canada does the swimming programs. Uh, they're one of the uh, the uh, programs in the pools, but they take up a majority of the pool time. Uh, so for us, we worked with them and saying, you know, how many people, like determining how many people per lane, um, the use of certain equipment and all this here stuff here. So we, we did a lot of work with them uh, on developing um, developing reopening policies. And we work closely with, the, like our branches work closely with their government on these policies as well to make sure that the, the government, the government was actually looking for guidance and we were actually consulting them to make sure that they were comfortable with what we were proposing and stuff like that. So it was kind of a two-way street that we did. So that was that was very good. But it, look, we were very, very busy. Like it was, it, this year was, it was just ongoing. And, and I'm sure that you went through the same thing. Uh, and I speak to Justin in uh, in the, in uh, Australia, and they basically shut down the island. Like they just shut her down. They just, uh, so nobody was allowed to come in. So they weren't as affected as everybody else, from what I understand. Yeah. In, in, in terms of um, financial support, you remember, uh, you mentioned that in, in the UK, it's called the furlough scheme and, and yeah. the uh, yeah. coronavirus job retention scheme is the yeah. official title. Yeah. What's, um, apart from that, you guys got 75%. What, what other support did either you... Uh, as the sort of the central um, organization within the life serving Canada, all the branches get, or potentially even the pool operators, did you get much government assistance? Uh, so we got we got assistance for rent. So if you if you were able to qualify for your for rent, so if you were renting, um, but we ended up we ended up uh, in the, at the end of December subleasing our uh, our office space, and we just moved national office we're permanently working from home now. Um, that's a new policy that we just came in with. We realized through COVID that actually we were paying money for this and we didn't necessarily have to do it. So what we did is that, so we were, everybody in Canada could participate in those two. Uh, so 75% of your salaries, that was a CBI, I think it was called. And uh, the other one was um, the rent subsidy. And the rent subsidy came up to approximately 70% of your rent as well or something like that. Uh, close to that, so we we got both at national uh, branches uh, that were eligible actually got that as well, um, uh, and it applied also to any organization that was um, that in Canada that were uh, had to uh, employees and that they could apply for this as well. Uh, one of the things that we did is that from a branch for for, for the branches we have what we we operate with a levy we call it the levy. Um, it's a the funding formula for for national, so the branches have to pay in, and we were cognizant that the branches were hurting as well. Like this, uh, this was having a huge effect. So basically, what we did is that, uh, as an organization, we evaluated where we were. Uh, we came back, we put a proposal forward for 2020. We cut our budget in 2020 by 41 percent, and then we cut it again uh, for 2021 by 30, and we anticipate that the 30 percent cut will remain in 2022, just so that the branches can actually, um, you know, uh, get back to normal. But we we honestly believe that um, uh, 2022, we won't be back to normal before 2022. I'd say mid-2022 by the time that everything, you know, you, you're, you're looking at tra just the training of uh, lifeguards. I mean, uh, when we opened last year, we had to find ways in June to train like 5,000 people, you know, in four or five weeks to make sure that those pools can open in, in June and July. So it was all of these type of things that, uh, that we're into. But I, I mean, it, it, to me, it was actually uh, also an opportunity for us to look at other ways of maybe changing the ways that we're doing business and stuff. So uh, I think that that was very productive as well. I, I saw it more as a glass half full instead of a glass half empty. I that's the approach that I took and I said, you know what, guys, this is an opportunity for us. There's a lot of things that we wanted to do. Um, 
so we're moving forward uh, with some very, uh, I think, progressive ideas. And um, so it, it's going to, we're going to change the way we do business uh, over the next two years. And and um, it'd be interesting to, to understand what parts you can share and what parts are still sort of in, in, in private planning mode. But, um, a couple of questions that spring to mind out of that then is, is other branches going through the same sort of um, reflective process that you've gone through in terms of the, the way they operate and what those new opportunities are and how does that fit, you know, how does that feed into your thinking and your work? And I, I found it really interesting that you shut the office and you've closed that down. How, how many, just as a sense of the scale of that, how many staff are in the So for us at, at, Nash, at National, we have four, four staff regularly right. i cut i i there's one per person that's left and i didn't replace that person yet um so we'll be looking at that next year probably um but um but i think the branches actually they they reorganize as well and uh they've uh, they've restructured uh, they're looking at different uh, uh different ways of of doing business some of them have cut employees um now, if this year was to go another year, I think that not only us, but everybody in Canada and around the world would be looking at, you know, economically, does this year, can can this model survive? And I don't even think, I don't think that the government will be able to continue to subsidize rents and salaries at the rate that they were subsidizing them for three years. I, I, I have a hard time to believe. So I'm confident that with the vaccines and everything, we're going to return to a certain amount of normal um, and the economy is going to reopen. Um, I think that there's still going to be, uh, you know, the social distancing, the masks and all this here stuff is going to remain. But on the high road is that we're going to be able to travel again. We're, you know, like we have here in Canada, like there's a, the big talk here yesterday was the Atlantic bubble. So what Atlantic Canada did is that they just did a bubble and they closed it off to the rest of the world. They just said you can travel within our bubble, but you can't go outside. Nobody from outside can come in, and no, you if you go out, you come in. You're quarantined for 14 days. So it was very interesting. It's a little bit frustrating for people like me because a lot of us move away from Atlantic Canada to Central Canada or Western Canada to work. And in the summer, we like to go home and see our family and all this here stuff. But you couldn't go because if you went, you took two weeks holidays. You had to quarantine for 14 days. You couldn't see your family. Wow. So. So, but they were smart things. Um, we're seeing other things that are happening right now, and they did this in Atlantic Canada, and I think that other provinces are, are looking at it. So when they did the Atlantic bubble, they actually gave people incentives to travel. So you were to, to do uh, uh, local tourism. So you could claim up to uh, $1,000 in expenses for local travel for the summer months. So the government would actually, uh, so actually it was, it, you know, it was creative idea. And then uh, you're looking at other, um, tourism has been hit very, very hard. Yeah. Uh, tourism, so, hospitality. And, so within, within, yeah. within the country then, you actually had, did you have, do you have borders then? To, if you wanted no, to drop. No, there's no borders. But, but I mean, uh, whenever you get like, they'll say, okay, welcome to, you have a sign that says, welcome to New Brunswick. Yeah. Uh, they actually had people checking, police officers there checking. And it was when on lockdown. Oh yeah, like I couldn't even, like here, we're right on the border. I'm in Ottawa and I'm in on border with Gatineau, Quebec. But at one point, like you weren't allowed to cross over to Gatineau. Like you just, it, it, um, they, they, and in Quebec, they, uh, they actually have regions and you weren't allowed to, at one point you weren't allowed to travel into regions. So if you're from Montreal and your parents are in Quebec City, you weren't allowed to go to Quebec City. Like that's how serious it was uh, in the larger community. Yeah. And I and I guess the the, the border, uh, particularly to America, uh, was was is completely shut. There's no there's no movement. It's closed right now. There's some essential services that we do because we're very dependent on uh, like a lot of products from the U.S. like produce, all that there stuff there. So there's there's essential services. They have that set up. Uh, they have an agreement on that. But uh, if you if you go over, um, you come back. You got to quarantine for 14 days. Now they set you up in a hotel. Whenever you come back, so you got to be in a hotel, get tested. You got to be there. I think it's two or three days. And there's yeah. people that are ending up with bills of 
three or four grand for that short of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, tell me then, what, what's the what's the current situation? What's the what's the the latest in terms of your organisation? How how swimming pools are done? I think you talked about some provinces potentially are up and some are. I don't know. Yeah. Why is it right now looking like in Canada? Well, right now we just came out of a lockdown, like I mentioned. So uh, we've been out of the lockdown for a month. Um, they're looking right now at a third wave and they're trying to figure out how the government's trying to figure out how they're going to deal with that. And we should know more by next week. I think that the vaccinations were supposed to be completed by the end of September. But now with, you know, we have uh, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, we have Johnson & Johnson, uh, all of these here um, purchases that the federal government has made gives us enough vaccine to vaccine everybody by the end of June. So that's very uh, encouraging. So basically, I would suggest to you that the pools will be opening generally uh, in in July, as they did last year. However, the larger communities like Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Montreal, Quebec, uh, those municipalities have maybe more uh, pressing matters that they have to deal with before they'd open up a pool. So depending uh, on on the uh, municipality. And uh, so I'm thinking that maybe if everybody's vaccine by the end of June, hopefully those pools will be open in September, October. Um, so if that is the case, uh, we should be returning to normal uh, maybe a little bit earlier in 2022. But I think that everything will be back to normal by July 2022. I think that if I was to really... Uh, look at that yeah right and and you mentioned earlier about the government uh giving sort of guidance and and advice quite late has that has that changed or are you it sounds like you're still not clear and it's not you know in the uk for, for reopening pools i think that all the all the parameters are there i think that everybody's agreed on the parameters of opening the pool and how to interact with clients how you know what do we need for uh, employees or lifeguards our primary concern whenever we started off of this here with our lifeguards, actually, we wanted to make sure that they were safe and uh, that they wouldn't get COVID and stuff. So we developed a whole bunch of policies in regards to PPE, um, you know, uh, how do you do resuscitation and all these here things here. Uh, so there's a there's all that part of it there that has been done. So all of that is in place. I think that we, uh, you know, you have summer. Uh, when we started doing this here, we started doing policies for summer because they have a lot of outdoor pools and that type of thing. Then we revamp those to meet the opening of uh, in the fall of the uh, actual indoor pools and all that there stuff there. So I think the policies, uh, everybody's comfortable with the policies on reopening. I think it's just a question of saying a lot of the pools, for example, are empty. Like they, they, they've emptied their pool. So now you got to, whenever they get the notice, then they got to fill in the pools again. And, the, you know, there's the whole process that they have to go through. So you just can't say, I filled the pool in today and tomorrow we're open. That's not the way it works, right? So um, so that's that's the whole process. So that's why I'm saying that it could take a little bit more time for the larger community and for them to line up and, and get their things. Uh, and I, it's not just putting the water in the pool, but there's a lot more to it than that. So. And and do you think do you think there's going to be a few pools that will never reopen? How how do you assess the impact on the market? Um, I think I think the um, there could be, but it, it it may not necessarily be due to COVID. If that was to happen, there could be other factors that come into play on that. Um, but mostly, I think that the pools are yeah. I would say that ninety over well over ninety percent of the pools will reopen. We have operators um, that provide training that um, that were adversely affected by this here, and that they uh, they have shut down. But other than that, I think that the pools will be ready to go. Yeah. Just for the benefit of our listeners, then just 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 to clarify, you're obviously responsible in effect for. Pool life saving. Do you do you also cut across open water and beach like we do in the UK? What what's the stretch of your? Yeah, life? so uh, so for us, uh, so we we actually national. We're a secretary, like I mentioned a while ago. So we do policies, our, our training programs, 
for all of those um, aspects, right? Whether you're in a, in a pool, you're on the beach, or so we develop all those training manuals. Uh, so the branches actually do a lot of contracting uh, with uh, Parks Canada, for example, or local governments, uh, local municipal governments on beaches and all that there. So we do have lifeguard programs. So there's one in PEI, there's one in uh, Nova Scotia, there's actually one in BC. Uh, I think Quebec does some, Ontario does some. Um, uh, so yes, we, we do that as well. So, but that's more driven by the branches. Uh, national, we don't get involved. With. Right, and and just quickly in terms of so what what happened in the UK was that you know we we had a lockdown, lockdown was lifted, but um, pools weren't allowed, to, or I wouldn't say lifted completely, but there were less restrictions yeah. during lockdown. Yeah, pools were allowed to open, but the government said it was safe to go to the beach yeah. or go and swim in open water. Yeah. Do you did you have the same kind of thing? And ultimately, how did that? Because in the UK, I think it, it potentially had a negative impact on the safety of people entering the water because they were potentially going to the beach, not understanding rips, tides, and all the dangers and, and the benefits of, of of the sea, and very similar to open water. And one of the things we had to do was come up with quite a lot of communications, working with other bodies, RNLI, Swim England, etc., to try and get the message out there about how they could enjoy swimming, get back to swimming, but do it in a safe way, because it was in a probably an alien environment to what they were used to, it wasn't in a pool. Did you have a similar experience there? I'd say yes. Um, we're still collecting the data on that. Um, so we work with the coroners uh, throughout Canada in every province. Um, and uh, with COVID, it's been more difficult to collect the data because some offices are closed, some are open. Uh, but we we did see um, we did see uh, we think that according to our calculations that the the um, there was an increase in fatal um, drownings this year, but mainly due to the the whole aspect of not having lifeguards on on um, beaches and stuff like this here due to COVID that with, there was cutbacks and whatever. Um, but we're we're um, we're actually working with the branches and and the coroners. We're, we're not sure that uh, we're going to be able to get all of the data as, data as we normally do um, uh, with the coroners, just simply because a lot of offices are not open. But yeah. yes, we, we were affected as well. Yeah. And and what does sort of the rest of 2021 look like for you? And, and what, what are you hoping to get out of the rest of the year, given the fact <laughs> that, you know, it sounds like you're Hopefully not going into a, a big third wave and, and hopefully yeah. a short third wave. But yeah. what? So I think I think uh, I'm I'm optimistic that, uh, you know, the, we're going to be reopening again in uh, in July, uh, the pools. And I'm confident that, that that's going to happen. Our focus right now is uh, we're on the focusing on blended learning program, the whole idea of an e-learning platform um, so that for us to do that, we also have to look at, you know, we need to digitize all of our manuals to be able to do that uh, collected, uh, correctly. And uh, we're we're not just going to have digital only digital manuals, but we'll have the hard copy as well, so that people will be able to access both. Um, we have to review our member management system, so that's the data system that we have. This uh, every branch works with. It's managed by Ontario. Every branch works with this here, and it's, it's basically all of our lifeguard data and the training uh, data that we have in there. Um, and then we're we're also uh, we also have we're working with this company that does uh, uh, that manages digital uh, digital uh, documents uh, for libraries. So if you go buy a book and go take an ebook at a library. Uh, there's a company that actually does that in Denmark in Quebec City is one of the big suppliers of this here. So we're working with them and basically so you can you can have access to the manual, but you can't download it and you can't print it and all of these here things here and it's managed very uh, 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 strictly. Uh, so we're we're involved in that and we're, we're doing um, a review of our national uh, literature. Uh, so that we have two manuals that we're actually going to put into four or five modules or five manuals. So all of those there projects is uh, 
it's a lot of stuff. Um, we have uh, some of this here that should take six years if we did it under the normal process, but we're, we're going to accelerate it and do it in, within two years. We're also looking at uh, uh, doing a review of all of our marketing uh, and branding um, in 2021, 2022. Uh, we're going to be reviewing that aspect. Uh, we're looking at um, putting a major focus on bronze medallions and how do we increase our, our so we're, we're looking at doing how do we increase the numbers in bronze medallion that's kind of like the bread and butter and the future of the organization so we're looking at that and you know we're talking about hypothetically you know how do we increase that by 15 percent a year five percent a year ten percent a year something like mm -hmm. that uh, so we're putting all those strategies in place in the coming year. Yeah. Oh, can I can I ask? Because I think yeah. the bronze medallion has has morphed country to country. Um, yeah. How what what does the bronze medallion look like in Canada at the moment? Is it for kids? Is it for anyone? Just give me a sense of. Well, I think who... the bronze medallion is uh, is is the it's your first step into the uh, lifeguarding program. So basically. You're looking at uh, younger people between 16 and 14 and 16 type of thing uh, where we're at. Our focus is how do we we get them in there? there? There's kind of two components to this. There's a sports component as well. So we think that we can use the sports component to draw the, draw the uh, athlete to become a um, to become a lifeguard as well. So we want to focus on that as kind of a drawing card. So that is um, that's important as well. The other aspect I think, Rob, that's really important, and, and this is something, conversations that we're starting to have with our strategic planning committee and the board, and it's looking at branding and um, branding intellectual property and partnerships. So that's a, that's a route that we're taking. The other stuff that we're doing is basically operational. It's very operational from a branch perspective and how do we get the branches moving forward and how do we, you know, so for example, whenever I talk about bronze medallion, um, you know, our our training has gone down by 60%. So we also know that a lot of those young people have decided to uh, move on and go elsewhere because of the insecurity of the job market in the, in the pool. And they've gone to McDonald's or Wendy's or wherever, and some of them don't want to come back. So we got a job to do to bring that back. So if we had 5,000 uh, lifeguards in Quebec and uh, today there's 2,500, well, we got a job to do to bring it back to 5,000 and more. So that's an example, but uh, I think I think from a national perspective, what we're starting to look at is saying, what let's look at branding, let's look at intellectual property, let's look at partnerships. How do we monetize all this here stuff from a national perspective? And so that's the the next phase that we'll be getting into in the next uh, the next year or so, and that'll be kind of a two or three year thing. Yeah. Cool. Well, and and you touched. On sport, you mentioned the word sport. Just to just to touch on that briefly, because yeah. uh, we are running out of time a little bit. It's been a really fascinating conversation uh, for me. Obviously, I, I I handed over the Commonwealth uh, speeds to to Canada uh, <laughs> two years ago, and and it should have been happening this year, I think. Um, what what's the what's the plan for sport in general, and what's the plan for the Commonwealth sport activity? Well, for for sport, uh, for us here in Canada, uh, we don't have all of our 10 branches and territories involved in sports. So that's the main focus over the next, I'd say, two years is to make sure that all branches are engaged. So we're kind of putting in place, a, we're, we're reviewing a kind of a, a direction that we want to take and we're moving forward. So we're, we have a program with uh, Sports Canada, which is a long-term athlete development program. So we're looking at embracing that. Uh, we've adapted it to us. We have a group that's working on that. So that'll be going to the board. And the whole idea is that by 2023, um, we would be able to implement that in every branch across Canada. So that would be a, a huge start uh, for us in sport and building the program. And, and we think by, by attaching that to the bronze medallion as an incentive, uh, that that will work. Um, in regards to uh, the um, the 2023 Commonwealth Championships, everything is moving forward. We actually have a committee in place 
Brian, uh, Brian Meese, our CEO in Ontario, is actually chairing the committee. Uh, the Ontario is uh, hosting this, so Brian's actually chairing it, which is great. And uh, so they, their committee is in place. The first step is to do a host. Um, we're doing a host manual uh, that Commonwealth will be able to keep and move on with this year. Um, and then uh, we have the uh, Commonwealth Sports Committee is actually doing the event uh, manual. Uh, they're in the process of doing that and selecting which sports we're going to be doing and that type of thing. Um, and then, um, yeah, so we're well underway. Um, actually had a meeting on that two weeks ago. Um, and then we have a kind of a high level uh, committee, which is myself, Brian, and Norm Farmer from Commonwealth, the executive director of Commonwealth. And we just make sure that we're meeting all of the obligations that are in the contract with Commonwealth. So that's kind of our role uh, moving forward. But we'll be ready to go. And 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 for the benefit of those listeners, so they don't have to go and find the dates. What are the what are the dates for? It's September. I don't. I know it's September 2023. I forget the exact date, but I can get them back to you. So it's but you you'd be having um, you'd be having national competitions, branch competitions from from when this year maybe or is it going to be 2022 now uh no so uh we have our surf uh, championship plan for august and uh our pool championship plan it was supposed to be in june but we postponed it to november and uh hopefully uh this is all going to take place that we don't get uh, we don't have to postpone it again but uh i i'm the, the problem is, is that we got to open up the pools uh, for the pools. So that's why we postponed it. We wanted to make sure that the pools are open and that the athletes had a chance to at least compete and train. Um, the uh, the surf side may be a little bit different because they'll be able to go out on the water uh, starting in May, uh, April. Some of them are a little bit more. Uh, they like the cold water a little bit more and they, they can get out a little earlier in April. But uh, but I, I think that uh, everything will be a go and we will move forward uh, with okay. our events this year. Yeah. Cool. And, and just getting down to the last couple of questions, if I may, how, how's, it, how's it been for you, Bobby? Is it, has it been a year to forget or have you... Uh... No, I kind of took it in a different way. Like I'm very resilient, right? So I, I think that this is all about resilience. I think that the cup is half full. Uh, we got to look at it. To me, it was an opportunity right from the start. I think I thought that, uh, you know, I was pushing for certain things and people were saying, okay, well, let's just delay this or delay that. And I just kept on pushing. And I think at the end of it all, uh, we worked really hard and uh, people were very, very resilient. Uh, you know, there was a lot of frustrations uh, at, at some points, but I think there was more opportunities that came out of this than there was negativity. So, uh, so for me, it was it was great now i i had some counterparts that maybe say bobby like for me it was a lot tougher than that and, and i i can appreciate that but i i think that we got to look at it from that perspective and i think that we've all learned um you know and this whole virtual stuff has actually i think it, it benefited us on the long term i really do i think that we've demonstrated that we're capable of running an organization virtually in a sense um, you know, it's harder for branches, but for national organizations, we, we were capable of doing that. And uh, but uh, we did not slow down one bit like we were actually I would suggest that we were busier uh, during this time uh, simply because just trying to find remedies or solutions to everything that was happening on the short term. Um, so uh, so no, I'm I was. Um, the whole idea is here is that we want to get our lifeguards back to work in a safe environment. Uh, I think that everybody in the Commonwealth has done a great job at that. Um, and that was the focus. Um, and I think that the sooner we can open up the pools and get everything flowing again, the better it will be. And great. Great. Um, and my last question, uh, which is a question that I ask all of my guests, what's the best thing about being chief exec for Life Saving Canada? You know what? I like the people. I just love working with people. And uh, so for me, that's always the key. And um, so I think in our position is we're constantly in a federated model. You're constantly negotiating uh, and, and that type of thing. So that's a part that I enjoy the most. Uh, it's just being out there with our members. Um, and we have, I'd say, members. Uh, you got to take that very loosely because I only have 10. 
<laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of easy, but it's it's a constant negotiation. So you get you're negotiating with the chief exec, you're negotiating with a uh, your board member and the member rep, and making sure that everybody is comfortable with the positions that we're taking and the direction that we're going. But the key is to communicate all that stuff. I mean, if you don't communicate in federated models, you're not going to survive. So as long as people are know where you're going and they understand where the what the direction is, and they're engaged. And you got buy-in. If you don't do that, you won't have buy-in. That would be very problematic. So I try to make sure that that's the key that, that we keep on going forward. Great. Thank you for that. And, and time times is against us because it would have been great to talk about. Maybe we can get you back to talk about the Commonwealth and uh, and and some yeah. other issues as well because we haven't really touched on how we all collaborate as part of the Commonwealth and how we're um, trying to work. More effectively, more smartly Definitely. in the future. Yeah. I think that's really important work and uh, some really good stuff. And we're stuff. doing some great, great things uh, with Commonwealth. And I, you know, uh, kudos to uh, the four larger branches, uh, you know, uh, four larger countries, but uh, all members are going to benefit from the work that we're doing right now. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you 100%. And let's do this again. And, and I'll actually have to invite you to mine. So there, <laughs> I look forward to that. Yeah, and and, um, and uh, yeah, it'd be nice. To, uh, looking to to try and get Helen, who's the chief executive of South Africa, and Justin from um, Australia, on to do a podcast and and get their perspective as well. So thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. And um, it's great to talk to you. And and fascinating how there are lots of similarities with the work that we do and the challenges that you've been through as an organisation and a country. And how that's um, and how that's been replicated in in many ways here. So thank you again. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, remember, all of our podcasts are available on a podcast channel through Apple, Spotify, and Google. Uh, you can obviously catch up on a daily basis through all of our social media channels: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And next week, next week is going to be a corker for a lot of people because we are going to talk about all things Tadar. Now, Bobby doesn't know Tadara is our new CRM system, which we tried to introduce over the last 12 months, and it's not been without its challenges. So I'm really looking forward to talking to our operations manager, Mike, uh, Mike Dunn, about that. And we are actually going to try and make this interactive. So we are looking for questions. If you've got any questions about Tadar, your experience, and anything that you want to know about the operation, how it's going to work in the future. Um, check out all of our social media channels because over the next few days we will be posting details of how you can submit questions and that's really an important podcast to uh, give everyone a really up-to-date um, uh, experience of what's happening so thank you again bobby and take care thank you rob it was awesome thank you very much